Welcome to the Physics Central Podcast. I'm Calla Cofield. Today on the podcast, I'm talking to scientist and author Roger Weens. Weens's new book is called Red Rover, Inside the Story of Robotic Space Exploration from Genesis to the Mars Rover. The book chronicles Weens's experience designing instruments for space exploration. He's currently the principal investigator of the ChemCam instrument, which is on board the Curiosity rover, which touched down on the surface of Mars last August. This is a fascinating story full of amazing science, but also amazing characters and lots of human drama. We'll talk with Weens more about his book and his career today on the Physics Central podcast. The first space mission that Roger Weens ever worked on was fittingly titled Genesis. In the early 1990s, he was hired by the California Institute of Technology to help build an instrument that would do something no other space mission had done before. So the Genesis mission was uh, the first mission that went beyond the orbit of of the moon and brought samples back to the Earth. And so it was launched in 2001, returned in 2004, and it was out there to collect solar wind. That's Roger Weens, by the way. The solar wind that he mentions is a powerful gust of particles that comes off the surface of the sun. It actually travels all the way across our solar system, but it is deflected by the Earth's magnetic field. So to get a taste of it, Genesis had to go far from home. On September 8, 2004, after three years in space, the Genesis probe was expected to return to Earth. Upon re-entry, a parachute would deploy from its body, slowing its descent, and then a helicopter would snag the parachute and gently lower the probe to the ground. Genesis was on target to have this maneuver take place over an isolated stretch of the Utah Salt Flats. Weens was watching the descent in a building some miles from the landing site. Also in the room were other scientists who had worked on the mission and a whole gaggle of reporters. And as they watched Genesis begin its re-entry, things suddenly went a little differently than the scientists had hoped. We watched this thing fall for a full five minutes from the time that it was first acquired on the uh, on the long-range telescopic cameras, and uh, and it and it hit the ground uh, without the parachute ever deploying. And the reason was that the uh, accelerometers, which were to sense the deceleration and and then start a timer and pop the parachute, were installed upside down, both of them. And uh, so it it is a a perfect example of one small mistake that ruins uh, a whole uh, several hundred million dollar mission. Genesis crashed into the salt flats and broke into hundreds of pieces. And Weens suddenly found himself at the center of a media frenzy. So this thing crashed to the ground, and I was in the front row of the VIP area talking with the L.A. Times reporter at the time. And uh, one of our tall reporters who knew me well locally was running up to the front. And so about uh, 20 other reporters saw that I was the, the victim of choice and, 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 and ran over to me. And, and, and within a minute, literally uh, probably half that time, there were 20 microphones around me. 
and uh, and I think this thing went live on on national uh, TV or something. But uh, uh, the the media just absolutely loves uh, a disaster, and uh, and I knew uh, as a scientist and as one who had spent uh, eight nine years working to make sure this was done right, even in the event of a crash, that we would still get our science out of it, and we did. But um, uh, they pretty much had to have their say. There's, there's almost no way that, that the headlines were not going to say disaster. The Genesis team had a chance to talk to the reporters again a few days later, and they explained that they had actually considered this possibility and prepared the spacecraft as well as they could just in case it happened. Uh, but what we had to do in that case was we had to come back a couple of days later and tell them, look, uh, you had your good story about disaster, but it was wrong. And that gave them more fodder for more news, which is what they wanted. And, and, and then we were able to tell them that, look, we found the highest priority targets and they were still intact. And they were in a, an instrument called the solar wind concentrator that, that we made here at Los Alamos. Weens and his colleagues actually ended up getting some pretty amazing science out of Genesis. The solar wind is like our solar system's living fossil. Scientists think it contains the same mixture of atoms and elements that it did just after the sun had formed, but before the rest of the solar system congealed. And scientists used to think that the sun and the inner planets, including Earth, shared the same mixture of atoms and elements. Because theoretically, the sun and the smaller planets were born from the same gas cloud, so it made sense for them to have similar makeups. But the samples that Genesis brought back told a different story. The solar wind does not have the same mix of elements that we have here on Earth. One specific example of this is the oxygen mixture on Earth. The oxygen on Earth is mostly an isotope called oxygen-16. You can think of an isotope as a different flavor. So over 99% of Earth's oxygen is oxygen-16, and there's a little bit of oxygen-17 and oxygen-18 in the mix. But the samples that Genesis brought back showed that the sun has even more oxygen-16 than Earth. Our planet has a higher concentration of heavy oxygen isotopes. Those things don't just pop into existence. A chemical or physical process has to occur to make this happen. So what happened to the Earth that changed this? Well, for now, that's still an open question. But once again, when scientists learned about this, they had to change their ideas about the formation of our solar system. They still don't have a complete picture of how our home system came to be, but thanks to Genesis, they're one step closer. The Genesis scientists felt like this was the truly newsworthy event, but it didn't quite have the same draw for the journalists who had swarmed weens when Genesis crashed. But um, when this news came out, and it was published in Science Magazine in several articles, um, it, we we just couldn't get the attention of the media anymore, and that was uh, per perhaps a sad uh, a sad message on the on the state of media today. But that was that was the case. 
Perhaps the drama of human failure sells better than science, but the two are not mutually exclusive. The struggle to create an instrument fit to go to space, the task of selling that idea to NASA, then building the instrument, getting it to work, and then hoping that when it finally leaves Earth, it validates your efforts with some sliver of new information about the universe. That is a story full of risk and reward and conflict and desire. And that's the story that Roger Weens tells in his book, Red Rover, Inside the Story of Robotic Space Exploration, From Genesis to the Mars Rover. Weens started working on Genesis while he was employed by Caltech. And by the time Genesis launched, he had moved over to the Space Remote Sensing Group at Los Alamos National Laboratory. The next project he worked on was called the Sample Collection for Investigation of Mars, or SKIM. The idea was that a satellite would go to Mars and dip down into the atmosphere without actually landing on the planet. SKIM would collect samples of the Martian atmosphere, and then, like Genesis, it would return those samples to Earth. This would provide scientists with information that they could not gather from a robot that actually stayed on the Martian surface. SKIM was a very promising project. Many people felt that the science was strong and the design was reliable. But that doesn't guarantee a ticket to space. Part of the drama of this is the fact that so many people would love to get their invention into space, and uh, it's just not, not physically possible and financially possible. And, of course, you want to have a, uh, a system in which the best ideas rise to the top. And so that's what NASA tries to, tries to implement. And, of course, there's, a, there's just a lot of, of, of competition, uh, tremendous. The SKIM team spent many years developing the instrument, but then something happened that was entirely out of their control. On February 1st, 2003, the Columbia Space Shuttle exploded upon re-entry, killing the entire crew. NASA has experienced some massive failures in its time, but none compare to a loss of life. After Columbia, NASA did its best to deal with the situation. It proceeded extremely cautiously with both manned and unmanned projects to space. And in doing so, it rejected plans for a Mars mission that would return to Earth. It deemed such a mission too risky. And Skim was not to be. Working to make the best proposal and to get the best team that will, that will put a winning proposal together is a, is a real effort. And, uh, of course, when one loses, and there are many that lose, it's, uh, it seems you know, that there's perhaps some, some waste in the, in the effort. But yet I think this is probably the best way we can conceive of. Politics and bureaucracy are an inseparable part of any organized collection of people. Weens recounts many situations throughout his career when these issues seem to absorb more of his time and effort and focus than the actual science he was working on. 
For example, there was the time when the French collaborators on the ChemCam instrument didn't fill out the proper paperwork before a visit to Los Alamos. When the lab threatened to cancel a meeting between the two groups, the French scientists threatened to strike on the entire project. Thankfully, an agreement was struck. And then there was the time that ChemCam was almost canceled. First, you should understand what ChemCam is and what it does. ChemCam is an instrument on the Mars Curiosity rover. Now, the instrument itself sounds like something straight out of the pages of a science fiction novel. It's a laser beam that has the energy of a million light bulbs, but all that energy is focused down to an area the size of a pinhead. It only takes a few watts to power it because the blast only lasts for five billionths of a second. But it is powerful enough that when it strikes a surface, it can create a visible burst of light. Now, the purpose of ChemCam is to very quickly tell scientists about the makeup of a material. So the laser causes the material to radiate, and the light that the material gives off is like a fingerprint that reveals its composition. Now, ChemCam is also a remote instrument, so it doesn't have to reach out and grab the sample in order to gather information about it. And this is extremely helpful in the exploration of the Red Planet. The importance of this is that there are instruments on the rover that take maybe several days to make a measurement. And uh, if we were to try to probe every rock on Mars with those, we would make uh, you know, a few inches progress in a few years, so to speak. Um, and so it's very important to have remote sensing instruments as well that will uh, inform the rover team about what's around the rover, what's going to be uh, the most important samples to study, and to kind of do some of the early uh, winnowing and, and the early science and then and then help the rover team as a whole get to the most important samples. And so because of that, we've made about 40,000 uh, 40, spectra already on the surface of Mars. So ChemCam was selected in 2004 to go on board the Curiosity rover. The project would be based at Los Alamos, which is not a NASA facility, with Weens acting as the principal investigator. Two years into development, the entire Curiosity mission was vastly over budget, and NASA was under pressure to make some significant cuts. In tight times, administrators sometimes have to make a show of saving money. But ChemCam's budget was a drop in the bucket of the mission's total cost, so it was a shock to Weens and his colleagues when they got a call informing them that ChemCam was being canceled. And so um, the, the NASA administrator at the time um, uh, chose uh, one instrument to be essentially uh, uh, suspended or cut and one to be uh, scaled back significantly. And actually the frustrating thing was that these were the two instruments that were from non-NASA centers. And uh, so it was, it was viewed as quite a, a, perhaps a political decision. But the ChemCam team wasn't about to go down without a fight. They had the support of many people outside the project, and they called on everyone they knew to help them. So we tried to fight this 
there were other overruns that were much bigger than our instrument, which was about uh, maybe a million dollars over at the time, which in the scope of these instruments is really quite small. Um, and so we pointed that out. We pointed out that uh, that uh, a, a reconnaissance instrument like ChemCam was greatly needed for the rover mission. And uh, and everybody came alongside us. It was just absolutely great. One of the other instrument PIs gave part of a salary for us. Uh, I mean, just everybody was trying to pitch in. And uh, and the NASA review boards that are that are outside of NASA were also strongly recommending that this get uh, reinstated. And so eventually we were, but it's a, it's a scary time when something like that happens, and you just have to do your best. There are times in the book Red Rover where it sounds like the human elements slow down the science. But it was also people who saved ChemCam. It was people who made the instrument possible. And if anything, Red Rover is a testament to the amazing things that people are capable of doing. And if you think about society in general, it's, it's really, uh, I think, to our great credit that we can do some of these projects. Um, uh, I mean, they, you know, if you want to think over the whole scope of history, they rival the pyramids in Egypt and, you know, and things like that. And so it's, it's only been in, in certain time periods in, 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 uh, in the history of, of civilization that we can really get together and get people together and agree and work on some, some of the big projects like really this long period of, of, uh, of exploration of Mars over a number of missions. And they all, they all play together on that. The only thing Weens really laments is the fact that the general public is not more aware of these accomplishments. He read this section from the book. Mechanical creations from Earth are orbiting Mercury, Venus, the Moon, Mars, the asteroid Vesta, Jupiter, Saturn. Others are on their way to Pluto and to land on a comet. And three are on their way out of the solar system. One spacecraft landed on a tiny asteroid Eros, only about 10 miles across, and a European craft landed on Saturn's largest moon, Titan. Samples have been returned robotically from the moon, from a comet, and from the sun in the form of solar wind, and from the asteroid Itakawa. And so with all of this, what does the public know about it? And that's the frustrating aspect. It may be true in the news business that human drama sells better than science. Or maybe that's an outdated belief. Either way, Red Rover has plenty of both. Weens didn't set out to write a tabloid tale. He just told his story the way he experienced it. Space exploration is motivated by human desire. And wherever humans are involved things are bound to be somewhat dramatic. Thank you to Roger Weens. His book, Red Rover, is available from Basic Books. You've been listening to the Physics Central Podcast. I'm Calla Cofield. As always, you can find more podcasts, our Physics Buzz blog, resources, and so much more at physicscentral.com. Tune in next week for more Physics Central podcasts.